Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, no matter where you're listening, around the world, this is Sedona Talk Radio. And hello, hello everyone out there in the big wide world. This is Helena, Helena Margareta, or Helena Steinhornstein. Take it the way you want to have it. And I'm here with our Wondrous World show again. And some of you have complained you are not doing this often enough, and I know I'm busy, but I haven't forgotten you. And you know you have the archives. You can go back years and listen to programs. And I think some of them are really exciting, and some are even more exciting. We're going to have an exciting show today, I think. I'm sure we're going to have. And I have my guest. Hello, my guest, Nicholas Mordfeldt. Are you hello, there? Hello, I'm here. <laughs> hello, and we are both in Sweden. I'm sitting in Stockholm, and he is in a city south of me called, well, you say it, Nicholas. The town is called Söderköping, so maybe 200 kilometers from you? Maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will see you town. next weekend, by the way close to your city. And uh, Nicholas, uh, I heard your story from your wife, and Nina. And as soon as I heard it, I got so excited. And I really thought, oh, I have to have him on my show because you are a very successful, not only motivational speaker, uh, you know, leadership and all this, but also you are, are you a professional adventurer? Well, maybe you could say so. I, I, I'm not really sure myself. Uh, sometimes I, I do expedition that is quite large and well prepared, and sometimes I'm just going on with my life and meeting people, and having motivational speaking engagements, etc., and, and building businesses. And, and sometimes I realize that I've got a few minutes over in my calendar, and then I just run out in, in the forest and do something or, or do something. <laughs> yeah. For instance, a couple of years ago, I did something that wasn't prepared at all. I realized that I had um, 10 days prior to Christmas and then I took, took an airplane uh, ticket down to the Mediterranean and took a bicycle uh, and, and rode it back to Sweden and that was just, it took me six days and it wasn't prepared at all in advance so, so sometimes I think that's I'm quite impulsive. Uh, and how does your family like this? I'm not sure I would like a husband who did this to me. How did you know, your my, wife take it? <laughs> well, my, my Nina, she's actually even more of an adventurer than I am. I'm, I'm the extreme person that has done the, the, the interesting things that people would like to speak about, but she's maybe more into depth knowledge, and um, she's definitely into everything regarding land-based adventures like mountains and, and snow and, and, and archipelago, and I'm into the, the ocean. That's, that's my, my heaven. Yeah, and this is why you are on the show, because she told me you had crossed the Atlantic Ocean from Europe over to the United States in a rowboat. And That's I thought true. this man is either incredibly uh, crazy <laughs> or very, very talented. Now tell me, how did you get to do this? What put that thing, how, how did it get into your idea? That, that's a really mind. interesting story, and, and the story is quite long, but I will try to keep it a bit brief. Um, I started when I was a very, very young child um, selling things, go, walking over to the neighbors, started working. And after a while, when I went to, into school, I sat, I sat down and I was working for a quite large insurance company selling insurances and pen, pension funds, etc. And I started getting into the career, the, the rat race, quite early. And then I started to study at university level, and I studied uh, double time at the same time. And I uh, founded companies, and I helped friends found their companies, and I was uh, working with different organizations, and I had several jobs, and, and I was, you know, studying double and everything. After a couple of years, and I was also part of the, you know, the, the party team's uh, inner circle. So I was really living the full of life way too much for quite a long time. So. Uh, I was mentally exhausted, and in Sweden we call it, uh, you know, the burnout. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very common in Sweden. So, so, so I, I, I was, I was mentally uh, worn out, and I really needed to start thinking about what will provide me with, with 
spirit and energy in my life and what is taking energy or sucking away energy from my life. So I started focusing on what will help me get, get further into some, something positive. And at the same time, I was actually into quite, two quite nasty um, experiences regarding accidents. Uh, firstly, I was in, in a freeway uh, accident with 17 cars smashing into each other, so, so I was quite damaged. Wow. And straight after that, when I was working at the gym trying to repair myself, I was actually um, in Stockholm uh, with a couple of friends, and we were walking out of a subway, and we were discussing which way to go up, up uh, where we were heading. And I had a big bag um, at my body, you know, swing, swinging the bag behind myself. And that bag was actually, in some way, it got caught in the subway when the subway started. So I was stuck in the bag, and the bag was stuck in the subway. So I was dragged and pulled off to the subway uh, and, and wow. really, really hurt myself quite a lot. So I had two major physical um, disasters on my body and one big mental challenge. So I really, really needed to start think, thinking about what, what I did want to do with my life. Did I want to go into the rat race even further or did I want to do something else? And I really had the opportunity to, to be stuck in the rat race for the rest of my life if I wanted. I had this huge yeah. career move in front of me. How old were you at that time when you were stuck in the subway, for instance, which I can imagine. I was taking the subway today here in Stockholm just to get back home. And suddenly they said, please exit this station. We have a fire, you know. <laughs> and everyone started to go out and fast also. And at that time there was a train coming by, and I just thought, well, I, let's get out of here. I jumped onto the train, and everything mm -hmm. was fine. And there was actually no fire, evidently, I heard afterwards. But you, but you actually went in, into another subway instead of leaving, leaving the, the yes, subway Yes, I system. went to the train, came by, and I said, well, it came from somewhere. Evidently there was no fire there. And, and I thought the fire was somewhere at the station, so I thought, well, I get out of here, and I took the train that happened to come by. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I don't know if that was adventure or what. But uh, go back to your story. How old were you at the time? I think I was a bit uh, close to 17, 18 years old when, when the subway accident uh, occurred and, and the uh, approximately same age when the car accident occurred. And uh, from my point of view, um, in Sweden, most youths are not working uh, so early, but I've been working throughout all the school years. So, so for me, I was... I was really, really worn out by then. And, um, yeah. Had you accumulated some kind of money at that time too? Well, for 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 a, for a young Swede, maybe yes, but but definitely not not a huge sum in some way. I probably have, yeah. had consumed it a bit too much. Nowadays, I'm much more interested in experiencing things and and relaxing in my life. And when I was young, maybe I wanted to have a new stereo. Yeah, now just putting you in the aspect of, of being a businessman, you know, which it mm. sounds like you were at that age. No, I'm, I'm way much more of an investor nowadays than I used to be when I was young. And then I wanted to have okay. all these nice gadgets. So anyway, so you had those accidents, and then what happened? Yeah, what happened was that um, I was so mentally exhausted, so it was very tough for me even to go to do the food store for a day and just buy some groceries and then head back home. So uh, every day I realized that I needed to, to be, um, I needed to find energy. And to find energy, um, I realized that I needed to do some training to be mentally positive. So I went to the gym every day. Uh, one day I trained the upper body and the next day I trained the lower body. And then I continued like that. And I was back home and I wanted to think about what is providing we, me, me, myself with energy and what is dragging energy away. And what was dragging energy away was probably everything that I felt was important to me. Uh, I wanted to be part of different organizations and I realized that maybe they, they could actually cope without me. I wasn't, you know, uh, people could actually um, replace me with somebody else. Sometimes people mm -hmm. think that they are too important yeah. uh, than they actually are. And I realized that, okay, what is providing me with energy? And I started uh, reading uh, Yachting World, and a UK-based sailing magazine. Uh, my father had a sailing yacht when I grew up, and we, I used to spend the, the summer out at the North Sea, and I used to have this minor optimist, a uh, very minor dinghy. So I, I loved the ocean, I loved to sail, so I, I was sitting back home feeling mentally exhausted and read sailing magazines. 
and in one of those articles there was a very very interesting article about two British guys that they were going to cross the the Atlantic Ocean in a rowing boat and I felt wow that's what I would like to do uh, that will be my Whitbread Volvo Ocean Race journey my, my own project and so I started actually looking up uh, inf information regarding this and I started working towards it and I realized that at that point in time people only knew about eight people that has crossed an, an ocean in a rowing boat and most of the people actually were quite tough to, to actually get, get in touch with because most of them were a little bit of a bohemian people from the 70s so it was quite yeah. difficult to actually call somebody up and ask how did you do it what can I learn from from your mistakes so, yeah. so I really needed to invent the wheel that's what you need to times. know yeah, yeah. Very important to know. So uh, here you had an idea. Did you have a boat? Did you have someone to row with? No, I didn't have a boat. I didn't have a teammate. I didn't have the, the funds needed. I didn't have the knowledge how to, to raise the, the sponsorship needed. I didn't know anything at all. When I uh, started contacting people that was very good at training people in how to row, that was the first time I realized that you, you're actually using your legs when you're rowing a serious rowing boat. I was thinking about just using my upper body. So for me, I uh -huh. had half of the challenge solved right then, just realizing yeah. that I could use my big, strong legs. Yeah. So um, uh, so now you, you knew you had your body together, you had your idea together, you, and now you needed a teammate. Yeah. I'll, I started working towards this project, and uh, this was in the early ages of the Internet. So um, I mainly gathered information by going to exhibition fairs in, in other countries and uh, spoke to people, and I read books about people with different backgrounds, knowledge, experiences, and I spoke to five different specialists and uh, draw my own conclusion and spoke to five other kinds of specialists and draw my own conclusions. And then I started contacting people that has financed Volvo Ocean Race teams before, and then how did you do it? Can I do it the same, or, or what should I do? And then I started gathering expert information. And, and then I went on further, and after four, four and a half years of, of um, preparations, I was going to start in, the, in uh, one of the world's few ocean rowing races. So there was an ocean rowing race with 36 boats crossing from the Canary Islands at, from starting at Tenerife, heading down to Barbados in the southern part of the Caribbean. Ah. And we were the only Swedish team. And my, my teammate actually had three private uh, problems uh, forcing him to, to drop off the team quite uh, pri close quite to the race. So I needed to find myself a new teammate. So I, I um, got in touch with a person that um, he's an ultramarathon runner. And for more than 20 years, he has been in, in the world's top elite of running for maybe one and a half day in average or even longer in, in different competitions. So he has won the most famous races two, three times. And my teammate, Rune, he uh, had never rowed a real rowing boat and he, he was suffering from real seasickness. And we actually just met 45 minutes before, uh, before he came back uh, over to my place before flying down to the Canary Islands. So yeah. before before going on the journey, we had actually met each other only for 45 minutes. And now you're going to spend a twosome together for a long, long time. And that's another thing. Luckily, you did uh, get along, though, didn't you? Well, we all have our challenges, and, and I think that we got along quite well. And I'm really, really happy that I had Rune in the rowing boat because Rune, he's one, the kind of person that is, he's calm and he's relaxed and he's not... Uh, feeling all the stress out of the situation, uh, he is more in love with nature, and I was I was thinking proactively these kind of problems we've got, which problems can occur, and how do we make sure that they don't occur? So I had this stress all the time, and really 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 helped me to actually work with the nature instead of working against the nature. Yeah. So he really helped me a lot. But he was uh, much older than than he was more than 20 years older than I was, and uh, he had had children and he used to he, he had traveled a lot and um, and, and uh, my background that was Stockholm Hamburg London and and uh, I was working for, for, a, for a time as an IT analyst writing articles for for companies like Hewlett-Packard and IBM and Microsoft yeah and because your English I think teacher. is you know your English is pretty good for being a Swede usually they are not as fast <laughs> well, in that speech you. as you are <laughs> So, 
Uh, anyway, so now you were uh, were your fam- were your members of the family were they complaining? That well, uh, they, they didn't like want this? me to do it. They didn't want me to do it, but I tried to explain to them all the preparations and what will we do if the if this problem occur, etc. And and I think that most of my family members they didn't even bother to complain to start with because. Um, they, knew you. they they maybe didn't think that I was actually going to make it just just in terms of preparations. Ah, yeah. So you now know, this boat, how how long was it? Uh, you know, a rowboat. You have little longer ones, a little shorter ones, and this was how long was it in? This boat was designed feet? for 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 the uh, for the crossing. It was seven meters long and um, one eighty in in wide and. When it was completely empty, the, it had uh, it weighed at 220 kilo, and we had a minor cabin, uh, and the height in the cabin was 55 centimeters, so it was quite narrow and, and yeah, that's and not small. much of a cabin. And so, everything uh, else you have to, you know, because with the weather here, you had what time of the year was it first? We, we started the uh, in the uh, October 7th, 2001. Okay, so it was not during the big storm season. No, uh, we we had a couple of storms uh, in the beginning, but the, most of the hurricanes had passed by before coming yeah. down further down south, where, where the weather is can be quite nasty. But we ha- really had some difficulties with the weather because there is a uh, when we are rowing, we are rowing in maybe 1.8 knot uh, in average in, in speed, and um, further down south there is a big current going that is called the North Equatorial Current, and that is going to provide us with one and a half to two knots. An average extra, and that will also provide quite a lot of big waves that we can row in, and, and also some wind pushing us f- from the back. So we will probably double to triple our speed down there. And we had uh, calculated with that when calculating the amount of food. Yeah. And everybody has been using these these weather systems. You know, Columbus they do it. So so we were planning on doing that, and we actually didn't find that current. And we were trying to find it, trying to find it. We went further down south than it should be, but we couldn't find it. We had circulating currents instead. And in average, we had uh, 0.25 knots against us in average. Uh, And we realized afterwards what has happened, and that is that when there is a... um, uh, the El Nino effect in the Pacific Ocean, then the temperature is rising, and the year before, the year prior to the El Nino effect in the Pacific Ocean, the weather system in the North Atlantic southern part isn't as strong as the weather phenomena as it should be. So we had the same kind of weather, but it was way much weaker, so the current didn't occur. So we actually oh. had to, we, we were pushed backwards. Yeah, yeah. So, but you had planned this trip to take too long. How long, and how long did it take in the end? Well, in the beginning, I had planned it to take 40 to 45 days, uh, maybe a maximum 50, 55 days. Uh, I had food for 60 days and seven days of extra food, spare food to bring along in, in a bag if I needed to jump into a life raft. And it actually took me 95 days to, to, to do the whole crossing. So uh, Rune and, and I, uh, we were let actually... Let us know why this was. Why? What happened? Well, Why uh, did it take so the, much The, the first real you? big problem was that our uh, we had a water maker on board, and the water maker is producing fresh water out of the, the sea. And um, uh, we had solar panels, very efficient ones, and uh, dragging solar panel power into a battery, and the battery was... Uh, providing uh, power to an electrical engine uh, pumping the water maker. And the electrical engine broke down, so we actually needed to hand pump our water maker, and that was much more physically demanding than actually to row. So the rowing part of the race was actually the the, the rest part, and the most physical part was the hand pumping. And in the beginning, we needed to pump the water maker for four to six uh, hours per day to have the amount of water we needed. But after a while, it started to wear out because it wasn't it wasn't designed to be hand pumped and, and being being slowly destroyed. So it uh, started leaking leaking um, um, pressure. And when something is leaking pressure, you need to boost the frequency. So while boosting the frequency, that meant that we needed to pump faster and faster and harder and harder, meaning that we were pumping the water maker and and actually consuming way much more calorie than we thought we were going to do. And we actually had to hand pump the water maker for after doing that for one and a half months of time. 
we needed to hand pump the water maker for 14, 12 to 14 days uh, per 24-hour period. And then we actually had so little water, so we had our urine it looked like it was blood red sometimes. So, so it was it was a, quite a severe situation. That's terrible, but you survived. Now tell me, you, there must have been moments when you were sitting there in your boat alone and your teammate was sleeping because you took turns, didn't you? Yes, we were rowing three hours on and three hours off, so we tried to relax uh, even though you did need to, to do some uh, repair work and you needed to prepare, prepare food, but uh, usually you, you, you slept for one hour during a three-hour period. That seems like a kind of a hard time. <laughs> it's well, not, the, it doesn't the, sound like pleasure very much when you <laughs> talk about the, the hardship. Well, people actually think that it's quite tough, but imagine that you cannot work harder than being able to row tomorrow again and the day after that. So you actually yeah. you're, you're not consuming all your energy, so you're much more sitting down, looking at nature, and, and uh, you are thinking about what you're experiencing, about your family, life, the big questions really, really come down to you. Yeah. What, so what, what did you think of the most? I mean, you, I can just imagine you were kind of look at the sky and the stars. And, and did you have any visitors, any, any, any craziness from the, coming up from the ocean or the, any crazy animals? We had it all. I, I think that's the best way to describe it. We had whales uh, jumping next to the boat and uh, jumping a few times and then disappearing and then coming up quite close to you and you actually could, could smell when it was flushing water out of itself and you almost felt ah. that it was looking towards you. Uh, yeah. And we, we had um, minor whales uh, one night when uh, there was no, no wind at all so the ocean was completely flat. Rune woke me up and it was... Uh, the sky was completely, um, uh, didn't have any clouds at all, so it was lots of stars, and we usually navigated uh, by looking at the stars during nighttime. So then he, he, he woke me up and said, Niklas, come here and help me. And I told him, yeah, Rune, what's the problem? He said, come over here and have a look. And we had maybe, I don't know how many they were, 10 or 15 whales, quite small ones, four, five, six meters in length, sleeping at the surface and he had rowed into those and, I, and when you're rowing you're rowing oh. backwards you don't see where you put down your oars so he didn't want to smash into, into the into the yeah. waves to, to uh, make them angry or, or so he really, really he needed my help to navigate out of there so that's one one thing and uh, another but experience the whales do they sleep up on the surface is that uh, at least i thought they, they were do? sleeping i think so yeah I, i'm definitely no specialist at, at whales but um uh, well, we had lots of sharks, and we had uh, very big fishes jumping next to the boat, and we had um, something looking like a barracuda in the water, and uh, and we had um, lots of star falls. We we were happy enough to be out on the ocean on cloud-free, two cloud-free nights when the uh, asteroid field, the Leonidina, was passing by in the, the, the sky. So we had four or five hundred star falls, two hours. Uh, two nights in a row, and it was really, really gorgeous just sitting out there looking. It was magical, yeah, like a fireworks all over the sky. Yeah. And and all this wind and this everything is moving, and, and you, you really, you're part of nature, really, really part of nature. This is the thing, you're part of nature, because it's not like being up high on the boat. You are way down on the surface. So we are really, really down on the surface. We were yeah. sitting maybe 10 centimeters above the, 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 the surface of the water, and usually, in average, we had three, four meters of wave heights close to us. So the boat was going up and down in these waves. So we were really, we were down into the waves more, more than actually above the waves. Yeah, I was just wondering, what does a rowboat do? Does it go through the waves, or does it go on top? Do you ride on top of them? You ride on top, but if you have got lots of, of um, um, ballast, you will be able to go through some of them. Um, so it's, it's quite tough to actually. You get pretty wet. Start. Well, you get wet, but you can design the boat and you can have some minor cover, meaning that most of the water will just be splashing to the sides. And then you're yeah. actually, the boat is, is more going up over the waves. And, and you can actually be like riding on top of the waves. And there's like another kind of speed in the water than the whole power of the wave underneath. So you can actually go 
through waves, but but the boat was definitely designed to go to follow the the, the water instead of going uh, against the water. When it was blowing more than six meters per second uh, against us, we we never bothered actually to row, so we're just laying down yeah. there. And about the food, I know in this regattas in the sailboat races around the world, not all of the boats have cooked food. They eat just you know dry food out of cans. What about you? What kind of food did you have? We had spoken to several specialists and we tried to draw our own conclusions, but we, we hired a British girl uh, that was really, really good. Um, our food was everything from freeze-dried food to um, food that we had dried ourselves. Uh, and um, it was lots of lots of demands on the food. We needed The food should have low weight. It um, should should be able to cope itself out there uh, without starting to to becoming bad after a while, and we needed to be able to cook the food if the stove uh, rusted. Uh, so and so uh, we, uh, the food needed to be mentally motivated to eat and uh, be quick to actually to to prepare and, and be able to prepare it in in high seas etc. And then all the nutritional yeah. demands etc. So we we boosted the food with uh, multivitamin pillars uh, pills, and um, otherwise uh, we just uh, had had different food. Uh, the best food that was maybe rice with some dried vegetables and some dried meat that we splashed into water, and it was laying there in water for a while, and then we just heated it up at the end. That could have been very good quality food. The average food might have been some. Uh, uh, cereals, or uh, maybe it could have been uh, maybe a noodle, you know, noodle packages. If mm-hmm. you take two noodle packages and you destroy them inside the, the packages, and then you um, pour it out in, in a minor bucket, and then you pour some fresh water on top of it, and you will have it there standing in the sunshine, sucking water. And then maybe uh-huh. you're pouring two deciliters of olive oil on top of it, because olive oil is probably the the, the kind of food that has got the most energy compared to its weight ratio. So you will be able to bring along lots of extra added uh, muscle. It's very good to know energy. about olive oil. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, you, know you, you cannot consume has... too much. It, yeah. you, you will have this, uh, what you call, lecture effect. You, you will, it will prevent you from keeping it in the body. Um, you will need mm-hmm. to go to the toilet if you consume too much. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe you could have some, some uh, maybe roasted uh, peanuts or something on top of these noodles. That, that would have been a marvelous meal. Um, <laughs> but but we, really, we really, really had problems with the food, actually. We were out for 87 days without seeing land. We were out at sea for 95 days. And after day 70, most of the food started to be bad, and we really needed to filter it. We can eat this. We cannot eat that. Yeah. Um, only, only the things in cans was actually good to eat after that. And after day 77, 77 maybe everything was bad. And we actually consume lots of muscles instead. Uh, when you when the body is working more than the it muscles out day. of the sea, you mean out of the ocean? No, I, I mean the, the the muscles on our body. When when you're oh, working yeah, a lot, okay. yeah, when you're working yeah, a lot, okay. the body will feel yeah. that uh, if you're stressed, which muscles aren't being used as much as the things that is being used the most. So yeah. the, the 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 body will break down the muscles that you're not using so much to actually be able to get some, some um, parts that you can use trying to repair or actually boost the muscles that you're using the most. The body is rebuilding mm-hmm. itself to be able to, to survive for as long as possible. Wow, it seems... Uh, uh, now, did you see that you were losing weight all the time? Did, did you notice how your clothes were getting looser and looser? Well, first of all, we didn't wear so much clothing out there because of the... Um, uh, we were moving and rowing so much, so if you had clothes on top of your body, you would have got some friction sores on your body. Oh, uh, yeah. But in the beginning, I used a lot of clothing just to, to uh, rebuild my strength against the sunshine. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, otherwise, um, the Rune, he was an ultramarathon runner since more than 20 years of time. That meant that he had been running for more than a marathon in average per day since the beginning of the 70s. So he was really, really low on fat, and he was really, really endurance, not in, in the movement of rowing, but he was endurance in running. So Rune, yeah. he was very, 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 very extremely fit. And I was more of the ones that have been building muscles for a couple of years and tried to 
learned those muscles, the movement of rowing. So I was way much more fat in my muscles compared to Rune. So I was I was easier losing muscles than than Rune was. And I think that I had the weight of 87 kilo when starting the race, uh, and that was quite high quality muscles. And after 10 days at land, I had the weight of 72 kilos. So maybe I was probably below below 60 kilo when 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 stepping ashore. Yeah, so you were skinny at the time. Now, when you were out there at sea, what did you miss the most? In the beginning, you miss your family. And after a while, when things get bad, you start thinking about your family, how they are suffering. And after a while, you realize that you need to start to maybe try to shut that off because it's it's not helping you. You are, you are getting mentally weak, so you're having difficulties actually uh, enjoying the movement out there and you're having difficulties making the right decisions. Uh, if a person yeah. is, is feeling sorry for, for him or herself, they, they, uh, they are having difficulties tackling their situation. But if, you, if you're laughing at your situation and, and you're, you're telling yourself a joke about your own situation, you put yourself into third perspective and then it's way much easier to actually deal with the problem. Yeah. So, Did so they have actually, any idea... Yeah. Did they have any idea where on earth you were at the time? I mean, where on the map? They knew you were out in the ocean, but did they know if you were alive or dead? Had, did they have any idea at all about anything? Well, uh, we we used to have a um, satellite telephone, and we called back um, once every day. But after a while, after maybe day, I think it was day 42, uh, the... the um, satellite phone was broken, uh, something with moisture in the electronics, meaning that we couldn't communicate. So people didn't know where we were after that. So, um, so did we, they think we, you were dead? Well, um, I've heard the speculations afterwards, and um, maybe they didn't know that we were dead. They just wanted to wait for a while to see what was going on. But um, yeah. I, uh, my my, um, my girlfriend at the time, she was every week into a Swedish radio show, um, and in the beginning, they, they interviewed me, and then they interviewed her. And uh, when our communication was broken, they interviewed her for every week. And you can actually hear hear everything develop for week after week. We're speaking about more than three months' time here. And you could yeah. hear, her, hear her develop more and more fear and having all, more and more not really, really... Um, realistic ideas of what was going out there and and I heard stories about you know somebody calling her late at night and uh, she couldn't hear anything at all you couldn't hear just hear hear some some noise in the background and she she thought that okay the guys are dying right now and then she called somebody else in the family and that person called the rest of the people in the family and called the called everybody was calling everybody and everybody was crying the whole night just just without any reason for it. They were just yeah. speculating. And probably somebody just dialed the wrong number. Yeah. So uh, this was uh, not an easy situation for, for them, but it couldn't have been easy for you either because you wanted them to know, of course, where you were and what was happening to you. Well, to put it this way, I think that the people suffering the most when people are having a, a tough time, that is the ones at home trying Absolutely. to know what's going it's on. It's like when someone dies. Yeah. Very yeah. true. When someone dies, it's not, you know, it's worse to be left here alive than being gone. <laughs> so um, it, it, it was just a very unique situation for you. So Yeah, uh, yeah well, well to, to, to develop things further, I think you could say that we always knew what amount of problem we had and we know what kind of repair things we had and we were always speculating we didn't have anything else to do and people weren't walking by us with a new paper and telling us what to do so all of our time we just thought about our problems and our life situations so even though it was very tough and and we really really enjoyed ourselves out there and we really really we, we lived life out there and we were able to think about things for a week and then forget about it and then come back with a new angle and think about it for another week and we could discuss about the real big issues in life and, and the big questions and then we could speculate about things. And uh, uh, So we really, really, really felt that if we are dying, then we are 
regretting ourselves going out there. But the second before, we're not regretting regretting anything at all. That was my next question. Did you have regrets when you sat in the middle of the ocean and your water machine didn't work and, and, and your telephone didn't work and, you know, things didn't work? Did you ever say to yourself, why did I do this? Or did your team partner say, why did you get me out into this? <laughs> well, the situation was way much more worse than that. Uh, we didn't have any food for, for, for a long time. We didn't have any water, and we were really, really close to dying. And then we had a really severe situation. We had uh, more than 120 centimeters underneath the water line as a hull damage. So the water was leaking into the boat, and the lack of electronical um, system, this electronical system broke down, and we needed to repair the part of the rowing equipment with with um, wood. We found driftwood. We found drift, drifting out at sea. So Rune and I, we were under pressure for quite a long time uh, without communicating to somebody else. So you could say, say that we were under pressure. So, um, well, we actually felt that we we didn't regret anything at all. But at one point in time, I didn't have regrets, but I was really, really broken down and sad. And that was the watchmaker needed to. Um, there's lots of uh, bacteria in the water, and there's lots of plankton in the water, and some filters are stopping some of it, and some is going through into the whole. The, the core engine of the watchmaker, the, 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 the real filter. And we needed to um, have some cleaning material to actually clean it, to wash it away. So sometimes we clean the watchmaker, and uh, after that you needed to flush it with fresh water uh, to get the, the um, well, well the, the cleaning material, the poison away. And we had one specific can for it that we used to flush the watermaker with, and we had marked it with some... Um, some uh, rubber um, uh, gum. It's not there in Swedish. Some rubber yeah, rubber rubber band. Yeah. Rubber bands. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, I had I didn't see the rubber band, so I actually took the wrong the wrong water can when I was pouring up water to drink for myself, and I got this cleaning material in my body, and I could just feel. <sighs> everything sucking, the whole stomach putting together, and I realized that I had been drinking poison. So I was sitting down there and thinking, what do you do when you have been drinking poison? Uh, A, you drink much more water, or B, you try to to get it out to yourself. Yeah, which one did you do? (laughs) Well, I didn't know what to do, so I started drinking water because I was so dehydrated anyway. So I started drinking and drinking and drinking, and the body just expanded, and I was drinking and drinking, and maybe we had 11, 12 liters at the time, and I drank probably more than nine of it. And so I drank and drank and drank and drank, and um, I was sitting down there, and I was hand-pumping the water maker. It, it was in the middle of the night. And then after a while, I realized that, well, uh, this cleaning material, it is um, designed to, to actually destroy living uh, organisms in the water and my protective system my liver and my kidneys aren't they actually will they not be broken down by this material so i i you know be, being a pe- person of politics and economics and, and, and statistics and things like that and that was my majors i actually realized that i'm going to die i'm going to die out there so I was sitting down there crying for a whole night and I was feeling sorry for myself and I was feeling that I was so stupid. It was such a, it, it was a mistake that shouldn't have, have, have occurred. So I was sitting down there and working and hand pumping the water maker because if I was going to survive, I needed to have the water anyway. Otherwise, Rune, he needed to have the water. And then I realized that, okay, this, this is not about being part of the race any longer. This is about just survival. And um, that that was a real breakdown for me. Um, I was quite mentally low at that, at that point in time. You know, this about, the, of course, I'm stopping your story enough a little bit, but I happened to swallow half a glass of cleaning the material as well, a clear liquid that was supposed to clean the floor. And, oh. and this was in Spain. And I had just come back there and I had poured up some water in the glass but I didn't have a container for the clearing for, for the cleaning liquid, so I poured that in the glass also. And by mistake, I drank the cleaning material and swallowed. And of course, I knew 
now, my God, what do I do? And the hysteria that came over me. But I started to drink more and more and more water because uh, that was the only thing I could think of. Yeah, well, and I survived. Right I got a little sick. What? Yeah. yeah. I so got a little sick right from move. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the right move. And that was why I asked you, what did you do? <laughs> you know? Because I intuitively just drank more water just to dilute it because it wasn't diluted before. So I wanted to dilute it in my system. And evidently it worked. I didn't die. And since this was in Spain and my Spanish is so bad, I didn't want to call up the emergency trying to explain to them that I had this cleaning liquid. I drank it. But then I thought, my God, if I die, people might think I tried to kill myself deliberately. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't want that to happen either, so I wrote a note. (laughs) Oh, wow. But anyway, you know, we can all go through those little stories uh, so I can identify how you felt where you were really having trouble. Well, well, well this is really, really interesting. I would like to hear more, more about your, your, your note there. Did you actually start to prepare what, what, who said, will well, inherit in, in what? Find, yes, in case you find me dead, I happened to drink this cleaning liquid and I had the bottle there. Please, it was a mistake. I didn't know it. I put it in a drinking glass. So and do you I think that, that they would have believed that? Yeah, well, did you, well, I think they would have believed it. But do you think that that you have been given a second chance after that? That life is more positive. You can you can enjoy things more, and some things are not so important any longer. Do you think you you've changed, realizing? You know, I have been in those situations so many times, and I usually speak about them in my lectures. Uh, you know, most of the times. Uh, because for sure I am here for a purpose Mm. because I could have gone many, many times over. And that goes for you too, Nicholas, because you are helping people now with your lectures and with your motivational workshops, and you give a value to them. You add value to their lives. As I do, I give a lot of value to people's lives. So I'm here. For that purpose, and when I, you know, I get emails just about every day saying, "Oh, thank you, you saved my life," or "You know, you thank you for doing this for me." Thank you, thank you. And even in the night here, I get calls from people somewhere in the world saying, "Please, you know, you you help me. You know, I have to let you know." Well, they don't know that I'm in the middle of the night here, and they are having they're enjoying daytime. But you know, we're here for a purpose, all of us. You are, mm. I am, and people out there too. We just everybody have to are. find our speciality. See what we're e- Everybody at. can help somebody else in, the, in, in some way. And I think that when you get such a note or, or, or somebody providing you with feedback that you help their life, it's, it's, it's those magical moments that you really live on. And if they happen quite often, you really need to be able to to use that in a good way to, to go on instead of... Uh, devaluate that because it's still it's still a very very important thing for for the other person. Um, if you're helping people on a day-to-day business, you really, really need to move on and, and and realize that every move is important, every person is important, and you really need to stop and take your time and listen to people, even though you're busy. I think great leaders yeah. are actually people that, that stops and listen to people. They are people yeah. people, even though they are so busy, so they have 10 secretaries stopping people from getting to them. Yeah, very true. You have to listen. That's how you learn. Uh, you cannot learn anything if you keep on telling people what you know already. So um, what did you really learn from your crossing? Oh, a lot. Um, I used to study at um, a... Um, a university in Sweden, and then I went over to a university in Hamburg, and then I went to another one in, in, in Sweden, and uh, I studied for quite a lot of years, and I definitely learned way much more important things out at the sea and with this project than during the studies. And I learned a lot about the things that motivational speakers are speaking about, everything from sports psychology to to proactivity, to, to um, how to tackle problems and uh, to do the impossible possible and things like that. But what I really, really appreciated, what I value the most, that's 
the knowledge that everybody already has got. The knowledge that everybody has got, but they are not using it wisely and they are not thinking about it. For instance, if if I take responsibility in a situation that is uncomfortable for me out in the rowing boat, uh, then I maybe I survive. Two hours afterwards, I would have been dead. But if I'm not taking responsibility for something in my day-to-day life or, or in work uh, and everybody is... It's happening so much, and I don't know actually what is moving me myself forward. If I don't, in my life, really take responsibility for, for something, yeah. then maybe after six months you you will have a divorce, or after six months of time you will lose your job, or after three weeks of time a project will, 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 will definitely never occur again. So I realized that clarity is something that you really, really need to do. That clarity is the basis for every kind of efficiency in everything from relationship to to goal setting to 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 what you're doing and most people actually don't know what five percent of what they're doing is moving them the 95 percent the most in the, in the towards their goal or their their most people actually don't know the purpose with a job why, why did somebody want to hire somebody what was the effect they wanted what is uh, yeah. what is actually a market manager doing? What five or twenty percent of, of the work a market manager is doing is providing eighty percent of the output. People don't know what they're doing. They don't know their part in the whole system, or or people don't know actually what their uh, their partner is is really really uh, liking to do, and they are not doing that. They're doing something else instead. Yeah, you said some wonderful things here, and I have this kind of mantra or. Almost where I say it's up to me what is going to be. What's going to be is up to me. That's you true. Have to I go think, back to yourself. Yeah, I, I think most people actually take responsibility for doing something. They very seldom take the responsibility for the effect. If you take the responsibility for the effect, then then the how you're doing it that is more more or more just a road to the effect. But if somebody is just Doing something, the, the How do you define uh, that uh, the effect of it? Do you mean the result of it? Well, I think people say do that, and then they do it in, in a quick way. But yeah. if you're taking responsibility for the effect, maybe you are just you are double checking things. And and uh, if you have ten things to do, maybe you are just getting eight of them done, and two needs to be redone. Uh, for instance, if you take responsibility for the fact, imagine I'm a salesman and I'm traveling with an airplane to the other side of Sweden, maybe up to Kiruna, north of the, uh, close to the North Pole, almost. And I'm going to a sales meeting and then I'm heading back to Stockholm and I'm walking into to, um, maybe my, my boss and I'm telling him, oh, they're so excited, they definitely would like to sign a contract. And then my manager is just asking me, okay, when will it be, be signed? who is actually allowed to, to make the decision. And if I don't have checked that, if I haven't taken responsibility for the effect, I have to go back up to yeah. Kiruna with an airplane again. So yeah. who is doing what, when, and why, and how will it be done, and when do we double-check things? If you almo- yeah. always have that on your paper before calling somebody, who is doing what, and, and when you summarize the meeting, you will have that. Otherwise, you have to redo the meeting again. And then yeah. people uh, are spending too much time doing the same thing twice and they don't see their children go up and they don't have the time to go to the gym or whatever they want to do. Which is what's happening. So, yeah. uh, And, you know, I would also like to use another word, the consequences yeah. of what you're doing because uh, so many people start uh, something even stupid and, I want, uh, and they don't realize the consequences. And I think also when you took off in a rowboat... <laughs> crossing, uh, going from one continent to the other, I'm sure you had the consequences prepared for you, though. Yeah, definitely. For, from a mental perspective, I felt that if I'm not capable of dealing with every situation possible of occurring out there, and then I shouldn't start. Uh, that That's was my, right. mm-hmm. my, my, starting mental, uh, my mental starting point. But I was actually sitting down, I used the uh, the Microsoft Excel program, and I wrote down in a column everything that is preventing me from doing this in a safe, smart, good way. And every time somebody came up to me and told me, you cannot cross an ocean, that's too dangerous. And I asked them, why? And I said, thank you. And I wrote it down in, in the column. <laughs> and then in the column next to it, I found a solution. I was thinking 
trying to find a solution, and sometimes the solution meant that I had another uh, problem to tackle. After a while, that became some something like a manual on how, yeah. of how to do it safe, at least in regards to everything that I had mentally been been able to anticipate. And then I had to prioritize it, and then you have the problem that you will never have the time or the budget to to prepare everything and double check everything. But at least you have you have your you have think and and you try to tackle at least the first four five hundred crazy stuff that can can occur. Yeah. So um, and now when you um, towards the end of your your um, adventure, where did you reach the the other side of the Atlantic? I don't know if you hit the Caribbean or the South America or North America. Well, we actually headed towards Barbados, and we re- we achieved heading coming to Barbados. Uh, even though we needed to repair the boat with wood, we found drifting out at sea. But um, we really looked like for a long while that we were going to to just be able to reach north part of South America. But we we actually came to Barbados, and that is one of the the most southern parts of the Windward Islands. Uh, yeah, so that right. was a real real success, and. Uh, uh, we spoke to, to the Guinness Book of Records, and they told us that uh, this is one of the most severe crossings that, that they've heard about. But they cannot put it into some of the record books because that um, we hadn't, they hadn't been been checking the boat before and afterwards. And uh, so you usually should have somebody coming along all the way also. So, but Rune and I, we don't bother that. We were actually taking part in the race, and we. We are just happy that we actually survived. We didn't bother about the race afterwards. Well, absolutely. You know, this was a fantastic story. I have a, had a friend because he now has passed on, but he left uh, from uh, Gothenburg mm. uh, going over to the United States in a little sailboat. Wow. And that was quite something also. And the first thing people asked him when he landed on American soil was, will you do this again? And his deep answer was, oh, hell no. (laughs) 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 And he had gone through, yeah. He went through, uh, you know, a lot of stuff just like you did. And it's amazing. Here you were prepared. You had everything there. And things go wrong. I mean, things do go wrong. Yeah, they do. You, You can never anticipate everything in life. Uh, but we are way much more happy that that we actually survived just than than, than yeah. rowing, going to the toilet, eating, rowing, rowing, rowing. We lived life. We had more than thirty close to death situations. We were actually starting to to revalue our lives and looking at things from a new perspective. And uh, today it's much more interesting speaking to somebody that has survived cancer or built a business than speaking to somebody that that has summit summarized and summit Everest or something. We we. We grow as human beings, and we appreciate other things, and we try to help other people. And I think um, if I go into a room and I start telling people about my Atlantic crossing, then then I have destroyed the subject for the evening. So it's better to just uh, be a bit um, in the background and start to ask people about their life and what they're doing. And and, yeah, and today true. I'm not asking people about what they're working with. I'm asking them for their dreams and. Their, um, Maybe they're just stuck for a while, and that's not what the person would like to be. So I'm, yeah. I'm more interested in where are they heading, or who would they like to help, and what's their spirit, or what do they, what's the value And I'd like to ask you the same, Nicholas. You know, uh, and by the way, here for anyone who's been listening, I know most people listen through the archives, but we are with Nicholas Mordfeldt of Sweden. And he crossed the Atlantic in a rowboat, which I think is really quite fantastic. And he's a motivational speaker. Uh, Nicholas, do you have a website, a home page you would like to share with us? Yes. Um, there is an is it in Swedish or in, uh, in English, by the Most way? Most of it is in Swedish, but you will be able to, to read uh, some very interesting things in English about the Atlantic cross, crossing if you head towards my, my personal private uh, website that is called my last name uh, mardfelt.com so www.mardfelt.com and mardfelt that's m-a-r-d-f-e-l-t.com but if you google on uh, maybe Atlantic and Sweden and, uh, and uh, Nicholas or, or something or rowboat uh, then you will be able to find it as we are the only Swedes that has crossed the uh, that's ocean that's pretty good yeah 
So afterwards, I mean, no one was there to greet you when you arrived uh, on in Barbados. I mean, no one knew you were coming. Well, the, as the, it, it wasn't a competition. There, there were some people there from the race organizers, but they were there to greet everybody. Uh, yeah. the, f- the first thing we actually needed to do was all, all the, the, uh, the things that you're not thinking about. We needed to go to, you know, the customs, start showing up our passport. So, <laughs> so that's the first thing you're Seems doing. It's a bit odd. Yeah. And I needed to sign lots of paper that I, that I wasn't smuggling narcotics or guns or alcohol with the rowing boat yeah. across the ocean. But, but uh, you know, paperwork is paperwork. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you mean, so, but had the, what happened to the other sailors, the other teams? Had they arrived? Uh, were you the last ones? No, we were definitely delayed? not the last one. But there, there are some very magical stories there also. None had the same amount of problem that, that we had. But there were, for instance, two two persons, uh, two guys from, from the U, from UK, that has, they've known each other for 40 years. And after a while, one of them is um, jumping into the ocean, starting swimming uh, towards uh, the um, Cap Verde Islands, and they were way, oh way off. Yeah. And uh, he, it was quite calm water, so his teammate turned the rowing boat around, and he tried to, to um, tell him to go back into the boat, and he didn't want to do that. So he actually needed, he, he smashed down his, his mate with an oar and pulled him on board of the boat and, and uh, uh, bundled his, his feet and, and everything. And then he realized that his his friend, his friend since 40 years of age, since since 14 years back, yeah. he had been going on um, uh, anti-depressive uh, pills, pills um, oh, helping yeah. him to, and he got scared out there, so he started consuming too much, and after a while he was out of them. Oh, so who do you yeah. actually know? But he survived, did he? I mean, he didn't jump back again. Yeah, he he survived. Um, he survived, yeah. Yeah, and there was an Olympic rower that uh, started rowing across uh, together with with his wife, and she had never rowed before, and uh, he was so mentally um, depressed by doing this, so he uh, he wanted to go on another boat, uh, stopping stop to row, but his wife, she continued. She oh, continued really? on her own, on her own. Really, God. Yeah, Deborah you know, Weir. Very brave people out there. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. uh, but but also you really need to be able to to be strong in yourself, and it, it's way much more of a mental, spiritual journey than than a physical one. Everybody can yeah. move across an ocean if if you mentally will be able to deal with it. Yeah, well, of course you have to be mentally prepared. I don't know how well you have to be prepared if you are just fearful. You know, I'll be terrified of the waves and, and suddenly be left alone. <laughs> Uh, even if I have all the big trust in the higher power, it still doesn't, uh, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel very comforting to be sitting out alone in the big ocean if mm. the waves are hitting you from all sides and, and the boat is filling up with water. Now I'm just telling the bad stuff on it. Well, well you, still have to be, you have to believe in yourself and uh, if you can get some help from others, that's perfect. We had a school in... Um, in uh, I think it was in Iowa that the Catholic school that was praying for us each morning and uh, I think yeah. the Swedish Rowing Federation did the same so that was maybe that helped us. Yeah, uh, well, you know, everything is energy. Yeah. So definitely. when you are sent energy, I really believe in that. Nicholas, this has been very, very nice. I have enjoyed our hour together. It's over. We just have one minute remaining. So I say thank you everyone out there for listening. And, Nicholas, it was really very, very good having you here. And I learned so much from just listening to you. It was, it was a good good session. For thank me. you for letting me on the, on the show. Thank you. Well, thank you. And you have written a book, I suppose? Yeah, it's only in Swedish, but it's a marvelous one. It's uh, the Atlantic Rose Healthcare Book. And um, there is a couple of British ones called uh, Perform 200% More in Less Time with Less Stress also that you can Google. Great. Okay, så so Niklas Mordfelt, M-O-R-D-F-E-L-T, in Swedish. And I have many listeners, so uh, it has been nice for them to listen to you as well. So thank you all, and this is Helena Margareta. I will be back with you soon. And please send me emails. I love listening to them. I love uh, receiving them. And uh, my homepage is www.speakingtoyourheart.com. And I'll be back soon. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye.
And thank you, Nicholas, again. Thank you. This is music by Eddie Benitez. Thank you, Eddie, for allowing me to use music.